Good morning. This is Romans 8, 1 through 11. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking a question. And I'm a little hesitant to ask this question because even though people have been asking this question for thousands of years, it's not really the way we talk anymore. But let me just ask the question. Here it is. What is the good life? And let's define what we mean by this word good. Yes, this includes moral goodness, like being a good person, but um, good includes way more than just moral goodness. So let me put it to you like this. My wife, Jenny, makes amazing homemade pot stickers, and uh, she'll put a plate of those things in front of me, and I'll pick one up, with my chopsticks, and my skills aren't bad for a Byron, which if you're not Chinese, that's Mandarin for white person. Um, And I'll pick one up, I'll dip it in some spicy, crispy chili flake oil, pop it in my mouth, and instantly, everything inside of me is crying out, oh, this is good. Hun Hao, this is very good. Good means way more than just moral goodness. Good means total satisfaction, contentment, delight, and abundant flourishing. And so with that in mind, let's ask the question again, what is the good life? Like I said, we don't really use this language much anymore, and we'll talk about that later. But um, every single one of us, every single day, is searching for this, or we're medicating ourselves for the lack of it, 
or probably most of us, some combination of those two things, both the searching and the medicating. Why? Because even though we may believe the good life exists, it's always out there somewhere in front of us, just out of reach. And even though we may have little tastes of it every now and then, the moment we realize what's happening, it's gone just like that before we even had a chance to enjoy it. So what is this good life that we're all searching for? Does it even exist? And if it does, here's the money question. How would we go about finding it? We're in a series on Romans chapters 5 through 8, which is all about finding new life in Christ. So for the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, and really for the rest of the Bible, new life, the good life, really is intimately wrapped up in new life in Jesus. So if you're exploring spirituality, maybe you might say, well, God I'm open to, but I'm not so sure what I think about Jesus. And if that's you, first I just want to say thank you for being with us this morning, but what would it be like if Jesus really does have something to do with this good life we're all searching for? Would we be willing to explore that together for just a few minutes? And for all of us, how do we find this good life we're looking for in Jesus? We're working our way through Romans chapter 8, and this morning we're just going to look at verses 5 through 9, um, and we're going to ask three questions um, in order to help us find the good life. The questions are, what is the mind? Second, what is the mind of the flesh? And third, what is the mind of the spirit? Some of you may be wondering, what does any of this have to do with finding the good life? Let's ask the questions and find out, okay? First, what is the mind? Right at the beginning, uh, in verse 5, Paul says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirits have their minds set on what the spirit desires. Now, it would be easy for us to just assume that we already know what Paul is talking about here. Like, ooh, the flesh. Yeah, I know what that means. Let's not assume if we really want to understand what Paul means by the mind of the flesh or the mind of the spirit, let's make sure we understand what he means when he talks about the mind. Because here's what it's not. When the Bible talks about the mind, it is not talking only about our conscious, rational thinking. It's easy for us to think that, especially because we live 400 years downstream from the Enlightenment. Can we do like a 90-second overview of the last 400 years of intellectual history in the West? Is that okay? 400 years ago, there was an intellectual and scientific movement known as the Enlightenment. Um, one of the big ideas is that it said that real knowledge is found through things like reason, logic, and science. So, for instance, one of the big proponents of this today would be uh, Steven Pinker. He's a cognitive psychologist who's written a lot of books, um, including one a few years ago that's entitled Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Now, it's important to say that reason and science and progress are really good things. It's also important to say that the Enlightenment, in many ways, was... Um, pushing back on the uh, abuses of religious authority in society at that time. But one of the results of the Enlightenment was that it had this tendency to kind of reduce our idea of what it means to be a human being to kind of just like brains on a stick, kind of like Spock from Star Trek, you know, no emotion, just pure logical, right? 
So as a result, about 200 years ago, there was a bunch of other people that really started to push back on the Enlightenment, and they started something known as the Romantic Movement. So here's a very, very famous painting from the Romantic Movement. It's called Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog. And the Romanticism, in many ways, was all about feeling, intuition, and spontaneity, and getting in touch with nature, and especially it's about following your heart and becoming your most authentic self. Now, let's check in for just a moment. Does any of what we've just been talking about sound familiar? It should, because these are the forces that shape our modern life together. For instance, have you ever heard anybody say, follow the science? That's a very enlightenment thing to say. Or have you ever heard anybody say, you do you, man? That's a very romantic thing to say. Friends, here's why this is so important for us. Because we're modern Western people living downstream from all of this, these are the forces that shape our life together. And as a result, we have a tendency to think of the mind as only concerned with what we call objective facts. That would be the realm of things like uh, reason, logic, and science. And, um, and as a result, we think of the mind as uh, concerned with objective facts, but the heart is concerned with what we call subjective values. That would be things like feeling, intuition, and desire. And as a result, we separate those two things and, and don't bring them together, but the Bible never separates those two things. In fact, the Bible says that all of this, both our thinking and our feeling, intuition, and desire, that all of that works together to, um, to, to shape our lives in this world. And in fact, it says that our conscious rational thinking is really the last step in the process. Um, and that's exactly what Paul shows us here. So if we go back to um, verse 5, Paul says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Notice he's talking about our behavior and the way we live. He's talking about our minds and the way we think. He's also talking about our hearts and what we desire. All of that works together to shape our lives, and in our minds, our thinking is really the last step in the process. And I'm guessing maybe at least some of us might be thinking, oh, no, 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 that's not the way I operate. I'm somebody who I analyze the evidence coolly, calmly, objectively, and I come to a rational conclusion. And the Bible says, no, you don't. By the way, modern neuroscience also says, no, you don't. Steve, uh, Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist at New York University, and he has masterfully summarized a lot of research in this area, and he uh, comes up with a very helpful illustration for thinking about the mind that's called the elephant and the rider. Some of you may have heard about this. He says that um, most of our thinking is like an elephant, and that's our unconscious thinking. That would be feelings, intuitions, and desires. It's our unconscious thinking. That's most of our thinking. But there's this tiny little part of our thinking, that's the rider, and that would be our conscious, rational thinking. And he says, here's the thing. The rider can steer the elephant. The rider can work with the elephant, but that rider does not control the elephant. In other words, we are shaped and driven by intuition and feeling and desire way more than we realize and way, way more than we want to admit. 
So here's the question. If our, um, if our minds are driven by our intuitions, feelings, and desires, what shapes our feelings, intuitions, and desires? The answer is pictures. Specifically, pictures of the good life. Pictures of what's good and beautiful and desirable. And also what's harmful, what's threatening, what's to be avoided. And these pictures come to us in every aspect of our life. Let me give you some examples. For instance, let's just pick one of the most obvious in our culture. Think about social media. Think about the images, the pictures you see of your friends enjoying their best life now. Or the memes you see, or the tweets you read, or the reels you watch. All of those things are shaping us. They're they're having an impact on our elephant, our feelings, intuitions, and desires. Or think about the commercials we see, the way the people in them look the products they're using, and especially the experiences they're having, those things are pictures of the good life. They're shaping us. Or think about the news that we consume, the way that the events of our world are framed for us by different publications, that that it'll take the same event that happens, but different newspapers and different cable news shows will frame those events in very different ways. Those are frames, those are pictures that are telling us something about what is good and beautiful and and desirable and what is harmful, what is threatening, what is to be avoided. We could go on and on with examples like this, but let me offer you just one more. Think about your own story, the experiences you've had in life, the, um, the things that have happened to you, the things that you've done, All of that works together, your thinking, your feelings, your intuitions, and your desires, all of that works together to form a very powerful picture in your life about what is the good life, what is beautiful, desirable, good, what is harmful, threatening, and to be avoided. Friends, we could put all of this together. Let me just offer you a very simple um, working definition uh, of the mind for this morning's purposes. We could say that the mind is the orientation of our whole being Thinking, feeling, intuitions, desires, choosing. The orientation of our whole being around some picture of the good life. And you realize none of us get to opt out of this. This this affects all of us. That to set your mind on something is to be absorbed and caught up in some picture of the good life. That means that understanding your mind is to understand what has captured your imagination and shaped and ordered your whole life. None of us get to opt out of this. Every single one of us has a mindset because every single one of us is captured by some view of the good life, and that leads to our next question. We've just asked, what is the mind? But secondly, what is the mind of the flesh? And again, let's start um, by saying what it's not, because it would be easy to hear Paul use this word and for us to think that he's talking about the body, and especially in, in, um, in our world to think he's talking about sex. And even more than that, we would think, well, Paul is really negative about sex. Paul is definitely not sex positive. But what Paul is talking, when he talks about the flesh, Paul is not talking about primarily about our bodies or about sex. What Paul is primarily talking about is some picture of the good life. So um, when he talks about the flesh, here's a, a definition of the flesh for us. The flesh, the way Paul uses the word, is pursuing human centered goals by means of human power. That's a very different picture of the flesh. The flesh means pursuing human-centered goals by means of human power. Now, notice there are two parts to this. First, 
there's the goal. What is your picture of the good life? That's the goal. But also, the means. What are you relying on in order to help you reach that goal or that picture of the good life? So let me offer you some examples of this. For instance, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking about people who pray, people who give to charity, but he says they do it in order to be seen by others. And so as a result, um, what's their picture of the good life? Human approval. That's what their goal is, their picture of the good life. And the means they're using to achieve that goal is their own power, their own strength. So even though on the surface it looks like they're serving God, they're not really serving God, they're not really loving God, they're using God. God is simply a tool to help them pursue human-centered goals by means of human-centered or uh, human power. Does this make sense? Okay, this is an ancient example which actually finds a lot of expression even in our modern world. But let me give you a very modern example of this. We live in a world that says, hey, who's to say if there's a God? Who knows if God even exists? And people have really fought a lot about that. So let's take all this God stuff off the table and simply focus on making this world a better place. And again, it's important to say that um, there really has been a lot of violence, oppression, abuse, evil, wickedness, and injustice at the hands of religious people. And it's also important to say that um, this material world and human flourishing in this world is incredibly important. That things like the health of our planet or food, clothing, and shelter or uh, education and jobs or human freedom and dignity, that all of that is incredibly important. And so it would seem to make sense for us to create a society um, without any reference to God or any reference to a world beyond this world. And that's exactly what the modern West is. That's the kind of order, world order, that we've created. Um, And you can see that pretty much everywhere in our world. One of my favorite examples of this is a movie that came out a few years ago called The Martian. Matt Damon plays an astronaut who gets stranded on the planet Mars, and um, he has to survive for four years until they can come and rescue him. And so he creates a video log of his experience on Mars. And every day, it's just, he's just trying to find a way to stay alive, just a way to survive, and it's not going very well. So at one point, he has his video log going, and he looks into the camera, and you can see the time is 1933, mission day, solar day, 71 blah, blah, blah. And Matt Damon looks into the camera and he says, in the face of overwhelming odds, I'm faced with only one option. I'm going to have to science the crap out of this. And he does. That's what the whole movie is about. Friends, this is our modern approach to the world. That through things like science, technology, medicine, politics, that we can control the world, we can control our natural environment, we can create the good life, pursuing human-centered goals by means of human power. Now listen, if there is no God, and this world is all there is, then in the face of overwhelming odds, there really is only one option. We got to make the best of this world that we can, pursuing human-centered goals by means of human power. But there are some nagging problems with this view. Let me mention just a couple. I said in the introduction, 
that we don't really use the language of the good life very much in our culture. That's because as modern people, we don't really talk about being good people. We talk about being free people. We say, in fact, one of the biggest mantras in our culture is this idea that everyone should be free to live however they want as long as they don't harm someone else. And I want to focus on that word harm for just a second. Can we agree that that statement, everyone should be free as long as they don't harm someone else, really only makes sense unless we have some real idea about what's good or bad for people? What is harm? That statement only makes sense if if we know what's good or bad for people. Are we okay to agree on that, yay or nay? Yeah? Okay. Here's the thing. We also live in a modern scientific world that says if there is no God, then there is no such thing as inherent meaning and purpose in humanity. In other words, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, and therefore we have to create our own meaning and purpose as human beings because there is no such thing as inherent meaning and purpose. In other words, no one else can tell you what you're for, only you can tell you what you're for. Here's the question. How can we say what's good or bad for people if we can't say what people are for? It's kind of like if you take a knife and drive screws with it, it'll kind of work right? But if you do that enough, you're going to ruin that knife. Why? Because that's not what knives are for. When we say everyone should be free as long as they don't harm someone else, the only way that statement makes sense is if we have some idea of what people are for and what harm is, which is the very thing our culture denies. If there is no God and this world is all there is, then that really is a problem. And I'm not saying that Christianity doesn't come with its own problem sets, but if we get rid of God, we actually make the problems worse. Now, let me mention just one more problem, and this is a problem for all of us, um, especially if you do believe in God, because many people in our world are on a very profound spiritual search, and I think that's a good thing. People long for transcendence and mystery, and wonder, and especially we long for the peace that comes with resting, and I mean really resting in something bigger than ourselves. And so uh, we also live, however, in a world that says, okay, spirituality is a good thing, but the most important thing about spirituality is not finding something that's true, but finding something that works for you. And this mindset really is everywhere in our world and in our culture. So for instance, Ellen DeGeneres interviewed um, Pete Buttigieg when he was running for president, and um, Pete Buttigieg publicly identifies as a Christian, and Ellen wanted to ask him about that, but it was really interesting the way she framed her question. She said, there's nothing wrong with religion. It's really good for a lot of people, and it works for a lot of people. Now, there it is. And by the way, I'm not throwing any shade at Ellen. We all think this way because we all live in this culture, and so we all think this way to some extent. But this is a mindset that says, hey, the most important thing about spirituality is not whether you find something that's true, but whether you find something that works for you. We say that because we want to respect the freedom and dignity of individual persons, which is a really good thing. But you think about it, you realize that if you choose a spiritual path or a God on the basis of whether it works for you, that means that whatever you choose, um, is you, it becomes reduced to a therapeutic tool to help you find some other goal. 
Do you see the tragic irony here? I mean, the reason people turn to God is because we're looking for the peace that comes with resting in something bigger than ourselves, something that doesn't change, and yet our consumeristic approach to spirituality prevents us from ever finding that because God, we're not finding rest in God. God is a tool to help us find rest in something else, something that's always changing, by the way, because it's not rooted in God. It's rooted in our feelings, which are constantly changing. Friends, the mind of the flesh is pursuing human-centered goals by means of human power. We all live in this world. We all are subject to the mind of the flesh to some extent or the other. But if there's a God, and there is, that means that the mind of the flesh will never help us find the good life that we're all looking for. And that leads to our last question. We've asked, what is the mind? It's orienting our whole being around some picture of the good life. We've asked, what is the mind of the flesh? It's pursuing human-centered goals by means of human power. But lastly, what then is the mind of the Spirit? You know, I've um, been asking you all to do a lot of mental heavy lifting this morning. And um, I hope it's been worth it because, you know, if you've ever read Romans, reading Romans is really heavy lifting. And so I, my hope is that by doing a lot of this work, it's really put us in a position to understand what Paul is really saying here in this passage. And, and especially it helps us understand verse 6, which in many ways is really the heartbeat of verses 5 through 9. In verse 6, Paul says, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Friends, this is the big contrast here. This is what Paul is really driving at. The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. And we've done the work now, so that when we talk about, well, what is the mind of the flesh? We can paraphrase that using our words this morning and say, the mind of the flesh is death means orienting our whole being around a picture of the good life that pursues human-centered goals by means of human power is death. And by the way, once we realize that, that really helps us make sense of verse 7, which is a really hard verse. In verse 7, Paul says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. You know, we read that, and man, that sounds so harsh. It sounds so negative about people, like we're just like in this constant clamorous, vociferous protest against God, like a bunch of angry villagers with pit stork about to kill the ogre in the sky, right? But, but when we use the work that we've done, we, re- we can look at this now and we think, oh no, you know what he's really talking about? It means that my life could look really religious and spiritual on the surface, but if God is nothing more than a, a therapeutic tool for me to help find some other goal, then I'm not really loving God or serving God. I'm using God. No matter how spiritual or religious my life might look on the surface, and all of a sudden, this verse makes a lot more sense. So what's the alternative? Paul says that the mind that's governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Or we could use the language that we've been learning and say, orienting our whole being around a picture of the good life that pursues God-centered goals by means of divine power is life and peace. That's the picture here. Friends, whatever your conception of the good life is, Paul is saying, this is the real thing. This is the real deal. 
And to be caught up in this is to be caught up in a picture of the good life that is not focused on your goals for your life and for this world, but God's goals for your life and this world. And as we go through the rest of Romans 8, we're going to see more and more about what God's goals are for your life in this world. But the way we experience this life is not through our power, it's through God's power, because that's what the life of the Spirit is. That's what the mind of the Spirit is. In fact, one of the most mind-blowing verses in this passage to me is verse 9. Paul, he's talking to Christians, and he says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. That word lives is a word that really means home or dwelling place. He's saying that the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you, that that the Holy Spirit moves in, as it were, and he makes his home in you. Um, Here's why this matters for us. Think about the picture we have of the good life. We have a tendency to think of the good life as something that's out there somewhere out in front of us. And the picture we have is, here we are. We're the hero. We're the one that's going on a quest. We're the one that's going in search of the good life. But Paul is showing us here that the good life has come searching for you. That means that you don't go find it. The good life comes and finds you and rescues you because Jesus Christ is the good life. And he has come searching for you. The work of the Holy Spirit is to move in your heart, take up residence, and make Jesus more real to you. To make Jesus more alive to you and in you and through you. Because Jesus Christ is the good life who came looking for you. And that means that that, um, when the Holy Spirit gets to work in our lives, it starts creating a a whole new picture in our life. Because remember, um, the the role that pictures play in our life, the power that pictures have in our life, pictures make things real to you. So that whatever you watch or read or listen to or whatever you experience, that all of that is working very powerfully on your elephant and your rider to shape a very powerful picture in your life about what the good life is. But if our picture of the good life is caught up in in this picture of pursuing human-centered goals by means of human power, the result in our lives is death, no matter what our culture says. I mean, think about where we're at. As a culture, we have never been more free than we are now. We've also never been more anxious, depressed, lonely, suicidal, addicted, and divided. The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace because Jesus Christ is life and peace. And he enters into the death of our lives in order to bring about new life in us and through us. Do you want to see a picture of that? I mentioned last week John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Jesus goes to the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, who's been dead for four days. Jesus shows up. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, raise Lazarus to new life. But John 11 tells us, and we saw this last week, that when Jesus walks up to the tomb, he's literally quaking with rage. Jesus is furious at death and the way that death attacks his creation, the way that death attacks and and distorts the human souls and beings that he created and that he loves. So he's here to raise Lazarus from the dead, to give new life to Lazarus. But when Jesus walks up to the tomb, he says, 
roll away the stone. And Martha, the sister of Lazarus, says, Jesus, don't do that. By now there will be a stink because he has been dead four days. Dear ones, Jesus comes to you in the tombs of your life. He comes to you in in your tombs of grief, pain, loss, abuse, shame, trauma, wreckage, all of the wreckage of your story and all of the sinful wreckage that you produce as a result of all of that stuff in your life. Jesus comes to all of that and says, roll away the stone, but we're like Martha. We're like, Jesus, don't do that. There'll be a stink in there. We don't want anybody to go in there. We don't want to let Jesus in there. Heck, we don't even go in there. That's a place we stay as far out of as we possibly can. Our lives are filled with all kinds of tombs of grief and pain and death and despair and shame and trauma. And we keep those stones clamped firmly down on those tombs. But Jesus is saying, roll away the stone. Roll away the stone. If we roll away the stone from the tombs of our lives, Jesus comes in and he turns tombs into gardens. He turns death into life. Jesus turns wreckage into renewal. He turns our ashes into beauty. And the only reason he can do it is because Jesus was laid low in the tomb in order to bring us up out of our tomb. On the cross, Jesus came looking for you and he gave up his life in order that you could all, that we could all have new life. Friends, if you're exploring Christianity this morning, if you're exploring faith and spirituality, I want to encourage you and invite you this morning, roll away the stone. Let Jesus in. Let the Holy Spirit in to your life, not as a renter, not as a tenant, as the primary resident. In fact, let him in as the landlord, the new landlord. That is new life. That is life out of death. And by the way, it doesn't mean it's not going to be painful, hard, or difficult. It's going to be really painful, hard, and difficult. We're going to do a deep dive on that next week. But if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you, keep letting Jesus in deeper. It's especially easy if you've been a Christian for a while to think, oh, you know, Jesus and I, we've done all the work. We've explored every nook and cranny of every tomb in my life where there's there's no darkness left to discover. Friends, there's always darkness and despair and and shame and trauma and abuse and harm and grief left to discover inside of ourselves. We're never done being healed by Jesus. We're never done letting Jesus turn our tombs into gardens. Let him in deeper. If we don't let Jesus in deeper constantly, then those tombs are going to continue producing wreckage, not only in our lives, but in the lives of the people around us. Friends, let Jesus in. He turns tombs into gardens. The life of the mind of the flesh is is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. Jesus Christ is life and peace. Let him in, because every place his foot falls, every place he touches blossoms into life. Let him bring new life to you. He will do it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for your life. You are the ultimate transcendent source of all life, all rest, all peace, all light, all goodness, all beauty, everything that is desirable and good and true. It's you, Lord God. I pray this morning that you would help all of us to roll away the the stones from our tombs whether we're just beginning to think about 
um, spirituality and faith, or whether we've been Christians for years, Lord, help us to roll away those stones and let you in ever more deeply, Lord Jesus, and that the work of your Holy Spirit would make you more and more real to us, more and more alive in us, and that, that your work, your presence, your reality in our lives would transform our lives, that our lives would become a garden that might bring life to others. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.